The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's turn to God's Word together. John 18, we pick up here. This is the midst of what is called the trial of Jesus. It was actually a mishmash of events, rather unorganized, spontaneous, and largely illegal. We looked last time at the inquest before the Jewish high priest. Very briefly, I mainly concentrated on Peter in that first section of chapter 18. Now we come to Jesus being brought to the main part of his trial that is before Pilate, and we'll deal with that today and in the coming week again in chapter 19. So listen, John 18, starting at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves then and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the Word of God. There certainly have been many notable trials in human history that stand out, usually because of some fame or possibly infamy of the person on trial, or maybe because of rank injustice that is concluded in a trial. 
Those of you that are somewhat older, though you've got to be moving into the older class to be able to remember what was first called the trial of the 20th century, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and murder in 1935. Not a lot of you can remember that. Some can. But there was another trial of the 20th century that more of you can remember, and actually it started, began its trial proceedings 21 years ago this week, believe it or not. 1995, America's so-called trial of the century was that of the pro football star O.J. Simpson. Handsome, rich, accomplished, much awarded man, visible face in television commercials. People couldn't believe it at first that he was accused of killing his wife, Nicole, and another man. And maybe you remember some of the media circus that went on in Los Angeles beginning in January of that year, 95, through twists and turns and personalities as if it was a a daytime so-called reality show. We watched it unfold. When they said they had blood smears of the man O.J. was to have killed on the inside upholstery of his car door, I thought it was all over. But as you well know, O.J. was exonerated of the crime of murder. He's in prison for something else. A famous attorney in the Simpson trial, you might remember, was a man named Johnny Cochran. If he wasn't already a personality, he became one, a media celebrity, by that trial. And someone at one point in time asked Johnny Cochran, was there a trial he could think of in world history that he would have liked to have been the defense attorney because it would have been, you know, a really easy trial, supposedly, to handle? And Cochran said this, I quote, I would have relished the opportunity to defend someone who was completely innocent of all charges and a victim of religious persecution. Jesus is a man I would like to have defended, Johnny Cochran said. But because of his mission on earth, he no doubt would have declined my services. Yes, he would have. Cochran was right in assuming that Jesus Christ offered an attorney's dream defense. Whole books have been written over hundreds of years by legal scholars about all the illegalities involved in the trial procedures surrounding Jesus. There's a long list, actually dozens if you want to get into all the technicalities, but some of the main ones are the fact that no formal charge was ever lodged against him. He was not offered legal counsel. That was a requirement even in that day. Paid informants were used against him. He was struck in the face and brutally whipped while the trial was still underway. The highest judge in the land, Pontius Pilate, three times declared going into, you'll hear the other times in chapter 19, three times said he is not guilty. And yet this judge caved into political threats and allowed the application of capital punishment when no conviction had been concluded at all. You can't have a more illegal trial than that. Now, in John's gospel, there's actually rather little attention paid to the what we call the Jewish phase of the trial, which you see in the first part of chapter 18. I read about it uh, last time, and there isn't a lot said about it, frankly. 
Jesus is brought first before Annas, who was sort of the the real high priest, and and five of his sons or son-in-law, Caiaphas was his son-in-law, had occupied the office, but it seemed like Annas was the power behind the throne. He really called the shots for the temple aristocracy. We concentrated on Peter last time and, and his treachery or his denials of Jesus. And actually, John doesn't make a lot of what happens before Annas and Caiaphas, possibly because he knows the other Gospels written earlier did say more about that. He concentrates mostly on Pilate and the legal state trial that takes place there, the Roman trial. In Acts 2.23, Peter, preaching on this whole thing and on the death of Jesus in a, just a slightly later time, the day of Pentecost when Peter gave that wonderful sermon. He was addressing the people of Jerusalem and he was interpreting what had happened not very long before. And he spoke about the trial. He said, I quote, Jesus was delivered up to you, that is Jerusalem citizens, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified him by the hands of lawless men. Peter said a lot in that statement. God was behind it. It was God's plan. You people, nevertheless, used your volition and your will to carry something out that was actually lawless in how it took place. The slant I'm wishing to follow this morning, there are many ways probably we could look at this partial chapter. But I want you to see here that there are at least two monumental kingdoms of earth and heaven colliding over the person of Jesus here. The kingdom of religion gone awry and of state and political power. And this clashing of these two show us that these same powers still rock God's universe today. The aftershocks of this titanic struggle between, you could say, church and state are still reverberating in our society today and among those of us who practice the Christian faith. So first of all, let me show you or identify for you the first kingdom seen here, and it is a religious kingdom. Let's identify it this way. I ask you to observe the kingdom of God's holy law divorced from a true and right worship of God. God's holy law divorced from true worship of God. You know, it it should amaze you when you stand back and hold it at arm's length to see what the New Testament really has to say by way of labeling and judging the activity of the Jewish leadership in first century Jerusalem. Officially, this body is called the Sanhedrin. Pharisees and Sadducees are two political parties within the Sanhedrin. But these are the leaders of the Jewish faith, the leaders of Israel, the heirs and inheritors of the whole traditions of Moses and the Psalms of David and the great prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and so many others. They're the guardians of the Old Testament law of God. And it would not have seemed too unreasonable for us to have thought, well, these should be holy men. These should be men who revere God and put a great priority on worship, pure worship. But what do we see? And you can look at the New Testament and make no mistake about it. You're not misinterpreting anything when you see instead 
the New Testament authors and the words of Jesus himself indict these people as being anything but holy men. They were totally corrupt men. And the entire institution that they ran in Jerusalem had, was like a train that had gone off its tracks. We have other hints that they were even had their hands in the pockets of the merchants in the temple that sold doves and lambs and other things to pilgrims coming for religious festivals and that they got a cut from this. So you can, you can picture it. You know, I want my stand to be right up there where the, peop- where the traffic is heaviest. Well, a little bribe on the side will take care of that. That's the kind of thing that was going on here. And these people were jockeying shamelessly with Roman politicians to hang on to their petty offices and the small amounts of power that they were allowed to have. Now, Jesus is always kindly and compassionate when dealing with anyone who is a true, authentic, spiritual seeker. You don't have to be well taught. You don't have to have a a degree in religion to please Jesus that you are a true worshiper of God. You need only be sincere, repentant, and authentic in seeking him. He dwells with anyone of a humble and sincere heart. But just look at the people on whom Jesus pours out vitriolic scorn, so much so that sometimes we're embarrassed to think this is Jesus talking when we read a chapter like Matthew 23. You go scan Matthew. You could scan Matthew 23 while I'm speaking if you wish. It's the harshest speech by Jesus in the whole Bible. Who's he talking to? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, because they're all phonies. And he's saying, you preach, but you don't practice. You do your deeds only to be seen by men. You love seats of honor. You love privileges and power. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You are hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Outside, someone has fixed you up and you look good. But on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. You have even shed the righteous blood of the prophets. Jesus just did not hold back in talking to these people. He blasted them. And in fact, I've often thought to myself, in our politically correct society, you know, of course we have to be careful. You you need to speak justly and correctly of people and not unjustly. And there are those who would look at the things Jesus says about these leaders, and if they apply to all Jewish people, which they don't, they apply only to these particular leaders— If they applied to all Jewish people, Jesus would be speaking the most rank form of anti-Semitism. But he's not condemning all Jewish people, not at all. He's condemning these particular leaders at this hour of history. But we're almost embarrassed. We say, Jesus, you speak so strongly. Is it possible they deserved it? Here were the heirs who were supposed to maintain the tradition of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Isaiah. They were crooks. They were complete hypocrites. And they got blasted by condemnation from the Son of God. Instead of leading in love and reverence for the law of God and saying, let us see what this law, what this revelation teaches us about the great God. 
you know, they were really skilled. You can't take away their skill. These guys, if you could name a passage in something in Leviticus, let's talk about maybe food laws or something like that in Leviticus, something that's relatively trivial. Nothing in God's Word is truly trivial, but some things aren't as important as others. And you could name a verse and say, all right, five rabbis, give me your opinion on Leviticus 23.2. I'm just pulling a number out of the sky. And you'd get your five opinions, and these guys would talk for two hours, and they'd, they'd each have insights, and, and Rabbi so-and-so says this is so, and this is so. And they could debate about, as if they were botanists, debating about the finest, you know, veins in the leaf of a single tree. But they were men who never knew what a forest was. They knew how to take the leaf of the tree apart under a microscope, but they didn't, they'd never seen a forest. They did not understand that God gave his law to reveal his character and to lead eventually, as the New Testament says, to be our tutor, to lead us to Christ. The law doesn't save by itself. The law only reveals our sin and shows us our need for God's grace and salvation. Well, there's something here in this passage that's just, you know, the irony, John's big on irony to begin with, but the irony in John 18, 28 is, if you can say it this way, a delicious amazing irony. Look at what happens there. Verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now, what did they do? This is the the day that Passover is about to happen. They want to celebrate the Passover feast. There is, of course, a minor law somewhere that says, if you go into a Gentile's house, you are polluted because a Gentile, of course, is a rank sinner, much worse than you. And you wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover by being in his house the sole of your sandal would be polluted. So do you see what they're doing here? They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. But what were they there to do? The most wicked, heinous scheme that human beings could dream up to execute an innocent man. Oh, but... Don't let the the sole of my sandal touch the governor's marble floor. Hypocrisy in its most rank and ridiculous form. Can you see the worthlessness of a religion that takes the law of God, things that God gave to guide us to know himself, and turns them into a system of rules and rituals that somehow they imagine fixes up their outward behavior and does nothing to transform them on the inside. On the inside, their souls are full of rotten bones. Wow. Well, that's God's holy law, divorced from true worship. But now there's another kingdom shown here secondly in our text. And it's obvious as we move on to see the governing principles of Pilate and the Roman state. I'm calling that the kingdom of humanity's noble justice distorted by power politics. Let's make it clear. The justice system of Rome was a great thing. Rome was a great civilization lasting for centuries upon centuries. It brought order and stability of many kinds, not only military, but civil government, many forms of the arts and literature and architecture, roads, aqueducts, towns, 
All kinds of good things came from Rome and what at this time was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which it imposed on the, on the whole Mediterranean world. Many people benefited tremendously from what Rome brought about. And their justice system was one of those blessings. I know we have attorneys among us, and you could discourse on this probably. I can't. But I also know a little bit to, that the body of civil laws brought about by people like Justinian and others are cornerstones of law and early civilization. So here's, here's a system that brought great blessing and great good It brought courts that were organized, that required procedures that hadn't been required before, required multiple witnesses and things that are obvious to us but were not before that time. Well, here comes Pilate then, the representative of the good law of the state of Rome. Another kingdom, not a religious one, but a civil one. Pilate, you know, you can immediately start out commending him because what did he start out trying to do? He tried to bring order to this thing. Here was this mob charging into his palace saying, we need this guy killed right away. And Pilate said, well, why? Well, what did he do? Well, let's talk about a charge, please. You see Pilate immediately trying to restore the order that he knew was required. What is the charge? What is the answer he gets? What kind of a ridiculous answer do these Pharisees bring? They say, well, if he wasn't guilty of evil, we wouldn't have brought him here. In other words, we're not going to answer your question. Just condemn him. Pilate's still trying to be the orderly governor and saying, turning to Jesus, saying, all right, well, what did you do anyway? Jesus, can you tell me? What's this all about? And Jesus doesn't come right out and say, well, they said I did this, but I didn't really do it. No, he just says, well, what do you think? What have you heard? And he says, of course, he is a king and has a kingdom, as you get down to verse 36. And Pilate tries to investigate that and and gets to verse 38, where he says for the first time to the public, I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. And he's going to say that two more times. But you see, the very finest system of civil law is capable of being corrupted and abused. And at the end of the day, Pilate was not just a governor, he was a politician. And he had to keep his appointment in office, and Caesar was already unhappy with him, and we won't go into that whole story. But Caesar was unhappy, the Jewish people were unhappy because he'd used some heavy-handed methods, and he was in a delicate balancing act. Bad publicity about him was something he didn't want going back to Rome. So here he was, able to be corrupted by the bribes, the threats, and the manipulations of practical deal-making. Here's Pilate, representative of a good state, a state with noble principles, trying to apply them. And again, Rome brought us things like the separation of powers, the idea that you have an executive and a legislature and a judiciary, and their powers aren't all blended. And these are all good things that Pilate wanted to do. But at the end of the day, politics took over. At the end of the day, man's sinful nature can corrupt the very best politics. I don't need to defend that statement. Read your newspaper. We have a wonderful thing called a constitution. We have some of the greatest ideals enshrined in our founding documents in America that have ever appeared in the history of human government. 
They should be respected and admired. But we all too well know how they can be evaded, torn apart, forgotten about, laid aside, or compromised with. Whatever works has a tendency to work its way to the surface instead of what is right. So here are two kingdoms. The kingdom of religion gone berserk, even though it started with the true word of God. The kingdom of Rome's wonderful government slip sliding away by human manipulation and politics. And into it comes the third party who calls himself the king of truth. The king of God's revealed truth stands there. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, we would have used worldly methods. You can see that we're not using worldly methods. I have told my men not to fight. But I am the king of truth. Come into this world to show mankind what truth is. Christian friends, there's a stark thing here, and you need to see it. If you call Jesus Christ your Lord as well as your Savior, and he cannot be one or the other, if he is your Lord, he must be enthroned in your life. We've sung songs to that effect. Crown him with many crowns this morning. Did you mean that? Crowning him means not just believing in him for individual salvation, not just believing that he died as the Lamb of God, as sacrifice for your sins. It means looking to him as the king of your personal morality and of your business ethics and your understanding of how a country ought to be run and who should lead it. If Jesus is the absolute truth revealed from God, he is the one that defines what truth is. Truth versus falsehood, and you better believe there are both. And he is the supreme monarch who asks to be given unrivaled loyalty. But we are going to live in a society where this whole circus is going to be repeated again and again as competing kingdoms collide with his. Today, it isn't the Jewish Sanhedrin of the first century that are our religious problem. No, it's rather different. At least the chief problem religiously seems to be in our day, of course, in 2016, Islamic extremism. And they derive authority and direction from another book, not the book of God's law, not the book revealed from God through Moses and David and the others, another book. Now, we also should be careful, just as we said that Jesus' indictment of the Jewish hierarchy, the Sanhedrin, does not indict all Jews of all times. It indicts that particular group of people. Likewise, if we speak of what Islamic terrorism is doing today, it does not indict all Muslims. It does not even indict everything about the Islamic system of teaching. But certainly the Islamic terror cells of today derive their modus operandi and their rooted cause from something. And it is actually from a book, of course, not from the book of Scripture, but from a book written by a man named Muhammad beginning in 610 A.D., which does contain on numerous occasions the very clearly expressed thought 
that if the infidel will not accept your teaching about Allah, kill him. We know that. It's taught. There's no question. You can look it up. So those who bomb and behead and do all these things are a rogue religious kingdom that have taken the place of New Testament Sanhedrin in Israel. What are we to say? There are always going to be these rogue religious movements. If not them, some cult, some movement will come along. It is not professing faith in the true and living God. Some of you know the little squabble Wheaton College has been in in recent days where they have to deal with a professor on their Christian college faculty who was hired professing Christian faith to teach Christian faith, who now has been saying Allah and God of the Bible are the same person. And the college says, no, that's not what we believe. That's not what you were hired to teach. You cannot hold that. And of course, what's the watching world saying? Oh, you don't believe the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same as Allah? Mark me down as one who doesn't believe it because it isn't true. Allah is another God and another kingdom bringing its pressures against the people of God. Then you have the secular state around, not Rome now. Actually, the United States of America is doing a pretty good job of replacing Rome as an antagonistic state in this day and age, not according to the beliefs of our founders, not according to the professions of our founders who said there is an overarching providence, and we owe our republic to providence and its guidance and its protections. They weren't all evangelical Christians, but they acknowledged the power and the guidance of God. Where's that gone to? I haven't heard much about it lately. Have you? Instead, we have a state that says we have to drive out every mention of God. That's religion. It's separate. We can't have it. Get rid of it. And there's some perhaps who think the answer is, well, it's an election year, wide open now. All we have to do is elect a conservative, evangelical, Christian president, and that will take care of it. He'll lead us back into the kingdom of God. I don't think so, ladies and gentlemen. We've elected that president before, and we weren't led back into the kingdom of God. We cannot look for the secular state to lead us back into the kingdom of God. It is a secular state. It is going to pursue mostly secular goals, and we need to expect that. And yet the Bible still tells us, Romans 13, honor the governor. Honor the secular power. The implication is as long as it does not command you to disobey God, you owe it honor. Hmm. Sounds to me like we're right back where we were with Jesus, right? The religious powers and their kingdoms are out of control. The secular kingdom of the state is out of control. Where's Christ? Standing right in the middle of it where they all collide with him. But what this text, I think, does is somewhat what Ephesians 6.12 did in telling us in Paul's words, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against authorities, against cosmic powers. In this present age of darkness, we wrestle against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Colliding kingdoms, yes. 
they will go on until the end of this age. This is the age we live in, folks. We haven't entered into some bizarre new circumstance. It's just the world as it's always been for 20 centuries. Jesus Christ and his kingdom of truth revealed in the Holy Scripture and the gospel of the cross stake out claims upon your uncompromising loyalty, Christian. And you better know there are going to be competing worldviews that aren't going to be happy with you. Competing worldviews that listen to this sermon being broadcast. Who knows what nice mail I'll get from some Islamic person. Bring it on. Bring it on. Don't be surprised if false versions of man's religion and man's government bring us the hostility of a secular mindset or a warped religious mindset who throw all their weapons against us. If we begin for a single hour to start serving a kingdom of relativism and pragmatism and what works for right now to get me out of trouble, then you can call us Caiaphas and call us Pilate because we will have departed from citizenship in the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Let us fix our eyes on the king of truth and follow him at any cost. Amen. Father, help us in this age. We want an easy fix. We want the right person to be elected. We want the government to change its mind. We, we say to one another, oh, if they just put prayer back in the schools, that'll do it. And then we ask, Father, who in the world are they going to be praying to? Help us to follow King Jesus and to know that happens at a cost. But it is right and it is true. Give us courage and give us wisdom to do this for your honor and praise. Amen.